Our Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 15, if you've got the church Bible, page 110. So, after the Lord has delivered the Israelites astoundingly from slavery in Egypt, ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, after they have acclaimed him in the song of Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15, we pick it up. Verse 22. Then... Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. And so the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Well, the whole community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Well, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they would gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert And there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, Thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? 
for they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord had commanded, has commanded everyone who is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who had gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. And so Moses was angry with them. Each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot it melted away. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is kept, whatever is left, sorry, and keep it until the morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. And then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put the omer of manna in it and then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is a tenth of an ephah. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And so they quarrelled with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there 
before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Thanks, Chris. Morning, everyone. Very responsive group we are this morning. If God is so good, then why does this happen? And why, why does this not happen? No doubt you can fill the blanks in pretty easily for that sentence from your own personal experiences. Perhaps these questions are at the heart of why it is that you just can't believe in God or why people you know just can't believe in God. Or perhaps you are a Christian, but these are still questions that you ponder on as you you face the difficulties that come up in life. We read in this passage about Israel grumbling against God, so questioning God's goodness and trustworthiness as they face difficult circumstances. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. As we pick up the story in the book of Exodus, God has heard his people's cry. He's rescued them from slavery in Egypt through a series of miraculous events that he performs through Moses. But things don't go so smoothly on the other side of the Red Sea. Just three days into the journey, having witnessed God's amazing power of deliverance, the people start grumbling against him. And so we have three parallel stories in this passage. We've got the, the end of chapter 15, then we've got all of chapter 16, and then the first part of chapter 17. So three parallel stories where the Israelites face difficult circumstances, and their response is to grumble. We're going to have a look at, the firstly, the circumstances that cause the grumbling. We'll then look at what's the heart of the grumbling, what's the problem with the grumbling, what's God's response to the grumbling, And then finally, what's our alternative to the grumbling? You can see those points on the outline if you've got a leaflet there. So firstly, the circumstances of the grumbling. Now, I think it can be easy to read this passage and, in fact, to read most of the Old Testament and just think to ourselves, those stupid Israelites, always grumbling, always testing God, why can't they just trust God? But we've got to remember that this was a generation of people who had grown up in cruel slavery. They had never experienced a day of freedom in their lives. Until now, God has heard their cries. He's provided a miraculous rescue for them. He's raised their collective hopes through the roof. Only, it seems, to bring those hopes crashing down. Because instead of an easy journey to the promised land, they find themselves in the middle of the desert, starving, thirsty, wondering what's going on. And so their grumbling isn't the grumbling of spoilt people who have had every privilege in life. It's coming from a place of deep hardship. That's important for us to recognize when we face our own hardships in life. Sometimes these are hardships that we've brought on ourselves. There's something that we've done and and the consequence of that has been suffering for us. Sometimes it's not hardships that we've deserved, so to say, but we can see how God is using them. Either we can see at the time that that God is using this somehow or 
maybe it's looking back years later and, and being able to see how God was at work in that situation. Sometimes it's just senseless, though. We just think, what reason could God possibly have for allowing this to happen? What does this grumbling against God look like? Point two on the outline there. Well, in a basic sense, it means questioning God's goodness and his trustworthiness, saying God is not as good as he claims to be. God has wronged me. He's deprived me. I need, in fact, I deserve better from him. Let's have a look at what the grumbling of the Israelites looked like. So firstly, there was forgetfulness. They'd forgotten about the miraculous rescue that had taken place before their eyes just three days earlier. In fact, they had selective memories as well. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 3, where they're, they're reminiscing about the good old days back in Egypt, back when we had meat to eat. Wasn't it fantastic back then? Forgetting about the brutal slavery that they had cried out to God to rescue them from. They attribute evil motives to God as well. He's brought them into the desert just so they can starve to death, chapter 16, verse 3, or die of thirst, chapter 17, verse 3. And in chapter 17, at the end, what we see is that they're putting God to the test. Verse 7, is the Lord among us or not, they ask. If God was really among us, he'd give us water to drink. He'd give us food to eat. We read from Psalm 95 at the start of the service today. It's a a psalm calling God's people to to come together in praise. But there is a bit of a gear shift, you might have noticed, at the end of verse 7, where the tone becomes one of warning. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. The Israelites in the desert, they're being used in this psalm as an example of how not to respond to God. See, by hardening their hearts to God, the people are actually doing exactly what Pharaoh had done just a few days earlier. They've hardened their hearts towards God. They're testing God. They're trying God. It's very much courtroom language that's being used to describe the way that Israel is speaking to God here. Now, if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, then your life is one where you're balancing two realities, the the reality of a good God, but also the reality of suffering and difficult or, or disappointing circumstances. And those can be two very, very difficult realities to reconcile, especially if you're in the midst of those difficult circumstances. Grumbling, at its heart, it's when we assess God's goodness in light of those difficult circumstances. So we use what has happened as a lens to examine who God is. So bad things happen to to me or to someone who I love, and, and I use those bad things kind of as a a measuring stick of God's character and God's goodness, which means, ultimately, that we question God's goodness. Now, none of this is to to trivialize at all the difficult circumstances that you might be facing 
in life, and I'll, I'll come back and touch on that a bit more towards the end. But just to be clear that we need to be careful about what conclusions we draw about God's character from those circumstances. The problem with the Israelites testing God, point three, is that they were actually the ones being tested all along. So if you have a look at chapter 15 in verses 25 and 26, and then also in chapter 16, verse 4, God explicitly says, I'm going to test the obedience of my people. Will they follow my instructions or not? And the test results aren't particularly great. Even after the provision of drinkable water in chapter 15, the next time difficulties arise, there's grumbling straight away. God sends them food to eat. He sends them quail and manna. But the people still disobey his instructions. Have a look at verse 20 there in chapter 6. Some of them pay no attention to the command to keep any manna overnight. Verse 27, some of them go looking for manna on the Sabbath day, even when they're told not to. So while they're putting God to the test, they don't realize that they're failing their own test. Of course, the core problem with grumbling is that it's an offense to God's character. God has revealed himself to Israel. He has told them who he is. He said, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. God is perfect. He's measureless. He's unconstrained by anything outside of himself. And he's not just told them this, but he has shown them this through his miraculous acts as he's brought Israel out of Egypt. But they've ignored all of this, and they've chosen to to judge God, not on how he's revealed himself to them, but on the difficult circumstances that they're facing. So what is God's response to this? Well, if you have a look at chapter 16, and skim your eyes across verses 6 to 11, you'll see that four times God says to Israel, I've heard your grumbling. And three times he tells them that they'll know that he is the Lord. So God is saying to them, I've heard your grumbling. You're going to know that I am the Lord. He's going to do something. And his response to their grumbling is that he provides for them. So episode one, if you like, at the end of chapter 15, he provides a piece of wood that makes the water drinkable. So essentially, he provides them with water. Episode two, he provides them with food. He, he sends quail and manna for them to eat. In fact, we see that he provides them with manna for the whole time that they're in the desert, the whole 40 years. But then episode three, chapter 17, the Israelites complain again. They put God to the test. They threaten to stone Moses. And we see that the extent of the grumbling escalates in each episode, doesn't it? So episode one, they, they're just grumbling at this point. Episode two, they grumble and they say they were better off in Egypt. And then episode three, they grumble and they test God. So surely this is too much. Surely they have exhausted God's goodwill by now. And so God says to Moses, take your staff, the staff that Moses used to bring destruction upon Egypt by God's power, take your staff, gather the people together and strike, strike the people down? No, strike the rock and water will come out for them to drink. So in a moment where the full force of God's anger 
would have been justified. Instead, God provides for their need at that moment. Now, this might seem like a, a very far-removed story for us a few thousand years later, but it's actually deeply personal because grumbling is telling God that he isn't good, that he isn't trustworthy. And that's what sin is. Sin is when I choose my way over God's way because my way is better. Now, none of us, no matter how often or how rarely we go to church, no matter how good we might appear to be on the outside, none of us are able to pass God's test. None of us are able to to perfectly obey God's instructions. No matter how hard we try, sin gets in the way. And so, like the Israelites, we fall short. Like the Israelites, sin puts us under God's judgment. But instead of striking us all down, like Moses, God struck something else. Or rather, he struck someone else. His own son, Jesus, who died to take the punishment for our sins. If we put our trust in him, if we accept his death in our place, and if we choose to turn our lives around and to live for him, that's the message at the heart of Christianity. If it sounds like I'm drawing a fairly long bow to try and weave Jesus into an event that happened thousands of years before his earthly life, have a look at these words that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. I think we've got a slide for this. This is, this is right where our 1 Corinthians sermon series earlier in the year cut out at the start of chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the facts, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, that is the Israelites, Paul's writing this years later, our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea, so the, the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. So Jesus is being identified here as that rock in the desert that Israel drank from. Not because Jesus came down to earth, disguised himself as a rock and sat there waiting for Moses to come along and tap him. But Because this desert scene points us to the gospel message, Jesus struck when we should have been. And notice that God is standing by the rock when Moses strikes it. God is identifying with the punishment that his people should have endured. When Jesus was struck for us, he poured out not water for us to drink, not physical water for us to drink, but his Holy Spirit to live in us to be his guiding and sustaining presence with us in our lives. So with with all that in mind, what's our alternative to grumbling? Because on one level, the application of this sermon is pretty simple. It's just don't grumble against God. That's the application. But we all know that on on its own, that is an unsatisfactory message. It just does not do justice to the difficult circumstances that we might be facing in life which might cause us to grumble, to question God's goodness. It's no consolation for the the trauma of mental or or physical illness. No consolation for the grief of losing a loved one or, or the helplessness 
of watching someone who we love suffer. When we have our own experiences in life of, of wandering through the desert, we need more than just don't grumble to get us through. When Lisa was up here doing the prayers a moment ago, we, I think just from the, the prayer points of people in our church family, things that are, that are going on in the life of our church and the world, just from that alone, we see clearly that there's, there's got to be more to this than just being told not to grumble. So how do we respond to our difficult circumstances? Well, if the heart of grumbling is assessing God's goodness in light of difficult circumstances, what we need to do is to, f- to flip that around and to see our difficult circumstances in light of God's goodness. So instead of saying, bad things have happened, can God really be good? We say, God is good. Therefore, we can and we must trust him and lean on him in the midst of this. Easy, right? Of course it isn't. It requires faith, often deep faith and long-suffering faith. It begins with drawing near to God, investing in that relationship, speaking to God through prayer, hearing from God through his word, encouraging each other as well in our walk with him. The building up of our faith is a process that takes time and it takes intentionality. It's not going to be something that happens overnight or by accident. And part of the reason for that is that we're on a spiritual battleground each and every day. The devil would love to convince us that God isn't good, that we can't really trust God to have our best interests at heart. We read the account in the Garden of Eden in the the first few chapters of Genesis, and we see that that was the devil's game plan with Adam and Eve to convince them that God isn't actually that good. And that's still his tactic today. So when, when we face circumstances that tempt us to wonder if God is good, to wonder if God loves us, we have to be careful because those are the times when we're really going to be susceptible to being attacked. We have to remind ourselves constantly of the cross where we see God's character, his goodness, his love, his selfless sacrifice, his provision of what we needed most. Knowing that there's nothing good that God could give us that would be anything more than just a drop in the ocean of eternity if he hadn't found a way to bring us back into relationship with him, to forgive our sins, to guarantee us eternal life with him. If God wasn't good, if God didn't love us more than we could ever imagine, then would he have sent his own son to redeem us? The cross is the true measure of God's goodness. And we also need to fill up on those promises we have in Scripture that it's going to be worth it, that one day the pains and the griefs of this life, no matter how devastating, they'll be over and they'll be replaced with something far better than we could ever imagine. Romans chapter 8, book of Romans chapter 8, has wonderful promises of comfort for times of suffering. Promises that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory 
that will be revealed in it. That's a, a, big, a big promise to get our heads around. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose to be conformed to the image of his son. Those are words that we need to hear when our suffering just seems senseless. That Jesus died for us, that he was raised to life, and he's at the Father's right hand interceding for us. Those are words that we need to hear when we feel abandoned by God, when we wonder, where is God in this situation? The promise that no one can condemn us and that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. These aren't just throwaway lines here in Romans chapter 8. These are promises that we can depend on. Now, there'll be times when we know all of this. We know that Jesus died for us. We know that these promises are true. We know in our heads, at least, that God is good. But at a heart level, these things are really, really difficult. And at those times, we can be brutally honest with God. God doesn't just want us to smile politely and to tell him everything's okay when it isn't. God knows us perfectly. He understands us. Jesus lived a human life on earth. He carried the weight of human sins. He sympathizes with us in our griefs and sorrows. When we read through the book of Psalms, what we see is really the full range of human emotions being poured out to God, directed toward God. Everything from the most joyful to the most anguished of heart being poured out to God. And even when we're struggling so much that we can't even express ourselves in words, we don't even have the words to be able to explain how we're feeling. God promises, again in Romans chapter 8, that when we don't know what we ought to pray for, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. So we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit interceding for us in those terrible moments when we direct our emotions towards God, when we pour out our hearts to him, no matter how incoherently we're doing it, he hears us. So a heartfelt conviction that God is good, even when life isn't, that's true faith. That is true faith. Even in the depths of despair, grief, fear, loneliness, depression, throwing it all on God, knowing that he is good, even if we'll never comprehend all of his good purposes in this lifetime. In 1956, there was a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott who was killed by natives in Ecuador, natives who he was trying to take the gospel message to. He was 28 years old. He left behind a widow, Elizabeth, and we can really only imagine what, what, what grief she must have felt at the news of his death. It was an occasion that surely would cause most people, even the most faithful, to grumble to God, to question, why would you do this, God, if you were good? This was a, a later reflection of hers on trusting God during such times. I'll read it out. God is God. Because he is God... He is worthy of my trust and obedience. 
I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you are good. We give you thanks that you love us. We thank you that you have delivered us from the penalty of sin, that you have shown your love for us, your goodness to us, so clearly at the cross where you sent your son to die in our place. Please help us to fix our eyes on the cross each day and for that to be the only true measure of your goodness for us, that in the difficult times in life when we are going through difficult times, when we're seeing other people go through difficult times, that you would help us to have the faith to be able to know that you are good and to be able to look at these difficult circumstances through the lens of the cross. And Father, help us, even in those darkest moments, those moments when we are right in the midst of the desert in our own lives, to be able to cry out in faith to you, to be able to direct all of our emotions, our fears, our griefs, to be able to pour out our hearts to you in the knowledge that you are good. And we pray that you would get us through these difficult times and that you would bring us to times of refreshment and times of being able to clearly see your goodness and being able to rejoice in that. In Jesus' precious name, amen.